My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by my friend Jeremy Carl. Jeremy Carl is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Um, he was also at the Hoover Institution formerly, and he was also in uh, the Trump administration as the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior. Welcome, Jeremy. Pleasure to be on, Alex. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy we finally do. Uh, we're finally doing this because we've uh, we've chatted before. Um, I really enjoyed your writing. Um, and you are specialized in a few areas. And one of these areas is uh, immigration, which is also the topic of, of one of your most recent pieces. And I think that's a good uh, jumping off point because I'm, um, I'm, to be honest, I'm probably a little bit conflicted on the topic of immigration just by, you know, the result of having been one and having benefited so much from immigration. Sure. My husband is himself an emigre and, uh, you know, it's um, it's it's a it's a complicated um, relationship to to the whole concept. Sure. Um, and we often hear that America is a nation of immigrants, and that is such a you know it seems to be almost uh, the slogan for the entire project. Uh, you have a problem with this perspective. It's not. It doesn't tell the whole story. So what's what's wrong with it? Yeah, well, the, the piece that you reference is uh, kind of adapted from a talk I gave at a, a Claremont event in D.C. called the, the Lies of the Ruling Class. And the title of it was sort of A Nation of Settlers. And it really is to say it kind of walks through the whole history of how we became in the public mind a nation of immigrants. Uh, and I kind of show in, in the piece that really this was um, not an organic thing, but part of a conscious Democratic Party electoral strategy that sort of started in the mid-20th century, which is, of course, not to say, which would be absurd, that we didn't have immigration beforehand, uh, that we didn't, uh, you know, have times in which uh, immigration was was a more important part of what we did. But it is to kind of uh, cast it in terms of a truer history of the country that goes back to where we really were a kind of settler society for quite a long time, uh, for really almost the first 200 years, really, I would argue almost exclusively. And then we kind of move um, up until 1890 when the frontier closes and then we become a, uh, and that's sort of according to the Census Bureau, they literally put out things saying the frontier is closed. We kind of settled all the parts of um, the United States. Uh, and then we kind of move into this mixed economy, if you will, of, of um where we have some immigration and, and some settlement, but then we kind of go through a very intense period of, of immigration uh, from about you know the late 1880s to 1920. And at that point in, in the early 1920s, people kind of get freaked out um, because they say, hey, we're becoming a nation of immigrants. We're not really sure that we really want to be a nation of immigrants in that way. And we kind of shut the door pretty dramatically for 40 years. Uh, and then it was really only over... Um, a period of ethnic activism that uh, was really encapsulated by uh, this this birth of this phrase, a nation of immigrants, that we kind of moved into the more modern uh, sort of notion of us being a nation of immigrants, starting in the mid-1960s with the Hart Seller Act. Um, and that, of course, transformed uh, America quite dramatically demographically, even though, of course, the sponsors at the time uh, claimed that it, it would not uh, do that. Um, so, uh, I just really trying to give a fuller, uh, picture of what Amer the America's immigration history looks like outside of, uh, sort of some of the propaganda around it. Yeah. And you make this clear distinction between a settler and an immigrant, but what, what characterizes the settler in, in opposition to the immigrant? Well, a settler is creating a new society. Um, and so when the pilgrims came in 1620, um, 
they, of course, interacted with the Native Americans who'd been here for, for thousands of years themselves and had their own societies, but they weren't looking to become Native Americans or join a Native American society. They were looking to build their own, uh, and they did so. And, of course, there were a lot of uh, conflict and atrocities on both sides. Uh, my wife's family you know, had various members scalped in the late 1600s uh, you know, in, in settler Native uh, conflicts. So, I mean, I think this was really... Part of the story, of course, it wasn't the exclusive story. There was there was cooperation. There was even at times intermarriage um, uh, at some significant uh, ways and significant times. But we really were building, for better or for worse, our our and I would certainly argue for better overall, our own society. And that this really uh, encapsulated uh, American society for for most of its first two hundred years and even longer. Uh, I live out in Montana, which is still kind of to the extent that the lower forty eight uh, has a frontier. In America, we're sort of it. And certainly um, you can talk to folks uh, whose families have lived here for a while and you'll hear stories even into the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century from people's families about kind of living uh, on the frontier as sort of settlers in a, in a very uh, sort of, I don't want to, primitive is not the quite, quite word, but it was, it was a, a very marginal uh, existence and not really kind of um, uh, joining anything, but but really creating a, a new thing with all the challenges that uh, that implies. Yeah, and there, there's kind of um, it, it is an interesting mix of people. Um, the the initial settlers of America. It's quite a unique thing. I, I don't know if you've read the um, the book uh, Albion Seed. I um, have. Yeah, and it's you know to someone coming outside from outside of the anglosphere um and i guess probably to a lot of people in the anglosphere it's quite an, a surprising uh description of the customs the folkways the just the, the the nature and the 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 level of strictness with which things were were uh you know just uh yeah just handled back then um it it, it, it america would look very differently if uh, i don't know a, a, a you know a a flotilla of Romanians would have would have come and and, and <laughs> yeah. just in, in a different way. I don't think I, we would have. In I, the first I'm, I'm picturing the uh, pilgrims wearing track suits, and it's uh, <laughs> exactly. tracksuits. You know, it's you have to me. build the BMW before you squat next to it. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a whole problem, and I feel like you know there are certain types of populations who tend to be the settlers, and there are certain types of populations tend to be the followers. You know, read into my description of this what whatever you'd like uh but you know there it's a different act to settle uh, versus to immigrate like you've yeah, you've laid that out yeah. um and i feel like what we've seen in the us and we've seen in europe as well um is that a lot of the populations who come later have different folk ways they have different ways of of adapting or not and i think that that's you know that's what happened after hard seller yeah. And and I'd say further, and by the way, that's a, Albion Seed is a terrific book and would recommend to, to anyone. Um, uh, but but I think you're, you're right to draw this distinction. And I think people, uh, and, and maybe certainly uh, if you're from Europe and you're not maybe as well read as, as you are, uh, this is kind of something hard to appreciate. But of course, the early settlers here, the mortality was just enormous. The risk was enormous. And, and they were religious fanatics. I mean, that's why they went there. And I, you know, I say that I'm, I'm a Christian myself and a conservative Christian. But I mean, these guys took it to uh, a different level. I mean, uh, the Jamestown mortality, which was kind of one of the first, really the first serious uh, settlement, you know, was, was approaching 90%. The first winter for the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock, we lost 50%. Um, these were just enormously risky ventures and the sorts of people who took them on were very different than those who followed after uh, even their co-ethnics in, in in many ways. I mean, it was just a, a very different set of incentives, a very different type of people. And um, I think the other thing that that folks from Europe often kind of maybe which where the, the culture is sort of so much of a from time immemorial type thing uh, have difficulty in understanding about the U.S. is just how young we are. I mean, my mother grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, um, at a time when Phoenix, which now has about 1.7 million people, had 50,000 people, uh, and um, what had Arizona had just been a state for 27 years when she was born. I mean, it was an unsettled, it was a settled territory until then. It wasn't even part of the United States in a, a full way. Um, that's how young this country is. 
and how you know recent our development is, and I think that really colors um, a lot of the American character in many ways. Yeah, I think one of the the more kind of compelling arguments that I hear for the maybe more libertarian proponents of immigration in the U.S. is the idea that okay, fertility is declining globally, and this is something I've covered on this podcast as well. And that's you know pretty much lying eyes fact for anyone who you know is out there and looking yeah. at you know what families look like today, um, and the fact that the U.S. still maintains its status as um, receiver of some of the, you know, most intelligent people in the world. People still yeah. really want to go to the, these legacy Ivy League institutions, you know, and even like someone in Russia has a smart kid. Harvard is the name that pops into their head. Like all of this, there's a lot of attraction to it. So this kind of positive, you know, these, these people do contribute scientifically. They contribute sure. in many ways. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to give that up. Yeah, and, and and by the way, I mean, I am not a, a zero immigration, close the door completely guy myself. I think we do want um, to recruit, just like any successful business, successful whatever, you want to recruit the top people from wherever you get them. But that's a thin slice. And if we're realistic, it's not... Um, it's not the vast majority of immigration we're getting today. Just, I mean, numerically, it's just a fact. Yeah. I mean, if you look, if you look what's going down in our... Uh, uh, southern border right now. It is not, uh, you know, Nobel laureates knocking at the door. Not that some of them might not be really able or hardworking, or or maybe even one of them will be a future Nobel laureate. But um, you know, the the vast majority, particularly of our illegal immigration, is low skill um, and uh, kind of replacing and driving down wages for U.S. labor. Additionally, even some of the high skill labor. Um, becomes a problem. Uh, you certainly look at things like the H-1B visas, which are kind of our, you're familiar because you have a tech background, um, but you know they're not sending their best under the H-1B visa typically. Um, and there's a lot, of, I mean, I, this is an area where I've done a fair bit of research and there's a lot of kind of scams going on where essentially you're getting you know, third tier programmers from India coming in to, you know, undercut a U.S. programmer's wage, but uh, they're not really the best. And again, I would never argue that we shouldn't go get a really top programmer or a top scientist or a top figure from the arts from wherever we get them. I mean, I think that 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 type of recruiting is really, um, you know, necessary for uh, keeping the society dynamic and, and making it successful. But that would not really be an accurate kind of description of the mass of immigration we've had. And I think people will go back on the other end of this, sort of the more libertarian types, and they'll say, well, you know, look at the early 20th century immigration. That's not really what they were. Uh, and I think that's absolutely accurate. But the difference is we were an industrializing society at the time and a manufacturing-based society and one with, with massive needs for low-skilled labor given where we we were, we also weren't a, a welfare society at the time. We didn't have a welfare state. And that's why, of course, a lot of folks ended up not making it and going back. Um, this, you know, we're at a very different stage of our development right now as yeah. a country. Um, and uh, we need different immigrants that, and it should be there to serve the national interests unapologetically. That's, that's why we should have immigration. We, we shouldn't do it as a an altruistic thing for somebody else. It's, it's to serve the interests of the American people. Yeah. And it, it really does make a difference if when you, you know, move from, uh, like you said, an industrializing state to a welfare state, also the source of the immigration. I mean, this is, you know, like South, Central and South America is just, it, there, there's just a different caliber of immigration. Like you said, you know, often they're not sending their best. And, you know, you can see that in, in many ways, you know, from even like, you know, uh, synthetic like fentanyl sources like, yeah. from across the borders, war in Juarez. Like there's so yeah. much stuff going on there that you yeah. maybe want to close your borders for. Um, that yeah, it's it's just it's it's nuts. And the idea that um, the U.S. shouldn't have any guardrails against essentially you know banana republic chaos is is a bit yeah. yeah. Well, in addition, of course, we have an entire racial preference regime right now, which makes it even crazier in many cases, because in, in many ways, in many times, we're as citizens 
you know, to the extent, you know, I'm representative of anything, I'm supposed to welcome in somebody who immediately, as soon as they touch down at the border, is going to have all sorts of legal preferences over me. Their kids will have legal preferences over my kids in the sort of racial spoils regime that we have um, kind of developed. And of course, this is a very subversive topic within uh, the U.S., Um, and you know, it's just kind of nuts that we, to me, that we've allowed this to go on in any way. I mean, we've sort of gone from a, a no Irish need apply early 20th century thing. And I'm not, by the way, of course, suggesting the extent that that was at all pervasive, that that was a good thing, but it just to point out that, you know, historically as is quite common, you know, immigrants suffered from a fair bit of discrimination in, uh, the U S uh, we've now kind of moved to an almost immigrant preference system in many cases. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, again, I mean, it's just to me, it's culturally and nationally suicidal. Um, so, I mean, I don't really know what more to to, to yeah. say that than that. No, I think, you know, there's there's also kind of the, the question of just, just raw numbers and raw fertility. And the U.S. is still, you know, compared to a lot of places, still has quite high uh, average fertility, uh, but I can see in in Western Europe. I mean, it, there's all, it, it's almost incontrovertibly true that um, every every mainstream politician is thinking that they're going to solve their fertility crisis by just flooding more yeah. and more people because people obviously are interchangeable cogs that you just plug into your neoliberal global machine. And they're just going to be producing whatever right. widgets for you. Um, hasn't worked that well up until now, but you know they're still trying. They're really trying yeah. even harder. Well, it's yeah. it's it's an erasure of culture. It's a it's a lack of seriousness about cultural difference. It's a it's a lack of respect for your own nationality and for other nationalities. I mean, it's really part and parcel of um the the sort of uh, what what uh, the the subversive writer Steve Saylor is called invade the world, invite the world. I mean, I think those two are are really uh two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, and kind of feeling that there's this universal Westernism that everybody wants to embrace and that they're going to be happy to embrace when they come here uh, and we'll all be one big happy family under capitalism. And it just, it's, it's a lack of respect for anybody's culture that to me yeah. really undergirds that type of, of false notion. It's a lack of respect for, for our culture and it's a lack of respect for immigrants' cultures. And, you know, I've traveled extensively i've for years i've lived in the developing world i mean i have a lot of respect for uh you know a variety of cultures that are very very different from our own and 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 i don't necessarily expect that those people just will naturally want to give up their culture uh but then that of course if you have millions of them immigrate here uh that creates problems um uh because you just get this this multicultural cultural clash and uh I just think it never ends well. I mean, I, I just, I start from a basis that diversity is a weakness, not a strength and unity in a country is a strength. And you can obviously overdo unity um, and you can, you know, diminish diversity to so much extent that you never welcome anybody. And I think those are both mistakes, but you want to lean on the side pretty strongly of things that unify you as a culture and we just we haven't done that. And I think when you look at so much of the friction we have right now in U.S. society, it can really uh, kind of really comes down to that to me as a, at a base level. It's like, what do we have in common? Um, you know, I used when I was a kid, I could answer that. Um, today, I can't answer that um, in any meaningful way. Yeah, because there was kind of a, a, a core culture that derived from that, you know, initial Anglo stock in some ways with, you know, yeah. whatever admixture there was. It was clear what was the main main culture. And it was also, you know, a different type of technology as well. I mean, now you actually can have a multi multiplicity of cultures that you can inhabit one day or the other. Like technology really kind of gives you that illusion that you're, you know, sure. you're yeah, in different communities. And in a way you are, you are in different yeah. forms. Well, and, t- and I think travel is another piece, right? It's so easy to go back and forth today um, where it wasn't generations ago. I mean, when, I mean, it was either a, a really perilous voyage, which was at the beginning, or even when a lot of my ancestors came here in the mid 19th century. I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, you know, weeks 
of, uh, you know, nobody was flying a plane to London the next day. Um, so it's just, it's a very different type of thing. We've also gotten very casual about people having citizenship in seven countries, even though that's of course, technically supposed to be illegal here in the U S. Um, you know, we just, we don't treat, we don't treat ourselves as a serious country. And so it's hardly a surprise that many of the people immigrating here don't really take us as anything other than a piggy bank, uh, either. Um, so, uh, you know, isn't that kind of the... Yeah, that's kind of the the core of, you know, the the universalist creed that all of these, you know, politicians subscribe to, like the fact that there really shouldn't be countries and the fact that, yeah. you know, we're still attached in, you know, weird ways, like our archaic ways to these, this idea of a country or the borders and stuff is, you know, it's kind of, we're still kind of using these concepts, but the future obviously will be a place where, yeah. um, you know, there's just going to be management. Management will manage all the processes that we need. You know, we'll need the food stuffs and the water stuffs and, you know, the gender surgery stuffs. You get them at the different points of distribution. It's, it's yeah, I mean, it really does feel like that. I, I don't know if you've seen this little video of, um, I think it's the foreign affairs minister in Germany. And she was saying that she really doesn't care what her German voters think of her, but she will, you know, continue um to support the uh, U- Ukraine and stand for Ukraine as long as the uh, as long as they can, and obviously she's talking about the fact that energy has, I think, gone up eleven fold or twelve fold as of yeah. the last time I've checked. That was a few days ago. Might have gone up even even harder. Um, this is really tough. Like German industry is shutting down. You know, hundreds of companies have stopped production because you just can't do it. Um, the fact that she has no allegiance no allegiance whatsoever to her voters, the people who allegedly put her in power, keep her there, uh, tell you, number one, about how democracy works. She is not accountable to these people, not at all. And two, uh, what her allegiances are and what most of these guys' allegiances are. I mean, she even, you know, spoke it in English in the the main language of the empire, so we can all understand. No, 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 of course. And I think you're, you're exactly right. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me. And, you know, in many ways, I'm a class trader because I would be lying to say that I am not myself a member of the globalist overclass by uh, educational training, by socialization. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out here right now at the fringes of empire as part of my sort of protest against that, but certainly by background and professionally. I am that, but it was always one of the things that really just repelled me about these folks was their lack of national feeling or to even suggest, as, as I think you correctly note, that a lot of them feel that um, there's something somehow indecent uh, about that type of feeling or wrong. And to me, it's, you know, that's the true beauty of diversity is that we have these diversity of nationalities and customs and cultures. And, and I literally, I mean, I spent, uh, I've been really fortunate, I spent three years of my life, basically, just kind of traveling around the world with, with a backpack, basically, um, in mostly in the developing world and, and experiencing the kind of rich uh, diversity and of ways in which people live. And I think that's beautiful. And to the extent that people want to homogenize that under kind of the umbrella of American Western capitalism, you know, I just think it's, it's a tragedy. Um, it's not that, of course, we we can't have um, cultures always borrow. You know, things are going to seep in. Uh, you can probably get decent pizza in China uh, these days. That wasn't true I, when I traveled extensively in China 20 plus years ago, I can tell you. But, uh, you know, and that's, and that's okay. But uh, to the extent that uh, China becomes the U.S., you know, I think it's a loss for China and the U.S. And I think uh, Chinese leadership, maybe even to a fault, probably also believes that, but they're, they're sort of more aware of their own cultural traditions and, and the risk of, of losing them. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just sad to watch the lack of loyalty, uh, to, you know, of a nation like Germany, which has its own rich traditions, culture, and history to, um, to, to that. Um, and, and as you point out, you know, even speaking in the language of empire uh, English, uh, is just kind of indicative of where these folks' loyalties lie. Yeah, I think Germany is really ground zero for this type of thinking, you know, like uh, Klaus Schwab and all this type of stuff. You know, there's yeah. kind of a 
almost you kind of have to renounce the concept of nationhood from from that place it's almost a, a sacred place for the universalist it's like okay this is where the the most intolerance has happened you know the singularity of intolerance and now this must be the ground from which universal tolerance this is the new society is built from here and there are a lot of people with their glassy eyes coming out of germany being yeah. the the zealots for the new the new way of living Right. Well, there's a certain, you know, uh, I've heard this called Hitler's revenge at at times and that, you know, what happened under Nazism was obviously so horrific um, that, and I mean, we had some very good friends who were, were German when, uh, before they, they, they left the U.S. Uh, a few years ago to go back. And they were sort of from this upper class German milieu. I mean, they were actually von, you know, whatever. They were literally from the younger class. Um, and you could tell they were just, they were personally scarred by kind of Germany's participation in the Holocaust and everything that happened in World War II. Even though, of course, they personally, I mean, they were born long after they had nothing to do with it. But they, you know, they would tell me that... And, and they sympathized with this view that basically sort of any type of national feeling in Germany was almost sort of verboten, uh, you know, that it would have just been seen as, as scandalous, you know, sort of what we would consider in the U.S. normal national pride uh, was, was sort of stigmatized. And I think Germany is kind of the extreme case of that. Um, now, again, you know, I, I think it's understandable. I understand it from a human perspective, but there's also a certain element uh, that's tragic about that. I mean, there's, there is a, uh, there's a, a lot of middle space between like sending everybody who might be a little bit foreign to the gas chambers and not deciding I have a nation at all, uh, or not having any pride in your country. Um, but I think in a lot of Europe, it's, it's just become, uh, very difficult to, to occupy that space. Yeah, and I think uh, a, a lot of people just, you know, think about, you know, individual immigrants that they know and, uh, you know, it, it, it has a, a very personal dimension, especially now that immigration has ballooned to, to a crazy level where it's, it's extremely hard to actually implement legislation that, you know, would inevitably have to be harsh for some people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, I think I, I see that being a, an issue, even just with people in my life, which um, some, some of them are conservative, not as conservative as me because that's you know, a bit hard, but, um, you know, they're, they really would have issues with that. Yeah. And, and I, you're right. It's difficult. I mean, I don't have a problem being, you know, that kind of strict mean guy, but I think it's, it's difficult in our, our feminized political culture of caring and compassion to, uh, to, you know, straight hard boundaries. And, you know, and I should add, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to why the vast majority of folks like this are immigrating here, especially I've been in some of the countries these folks are immigrating from in many cases. Uh, and if I were in their situation, I'd probably be doing exactly what they're doing. Um, uh, yeah. but that doesn't mean that it's in our interests and that's ultimately what has to govern for us, I think, uh, American policy. So, you know, I'm never angry. And in fact, I say this, uh, in my, my piece, A Nation of Settlers, um, I'm not angry at the immigrants at all. Um, and in fact, I, many of them will go on to become super valuable and productive American citizens. Um, I'm, angry at the global left and the Klaus Schwab world that has told me that, you know, I have to accept this, you know, hyper-capitalist, non, you know, non-culture, this sort of global, you know, mess of pottage, that that's kind of my, my birthright right now. Um, and I, you know, I reject that, uh, you know, I, I want to have a proud and distinctive culture here, uh, in the United States. Um, I certainly want my own children not to be discriminated against. And I've, I've got five kids, as you know, so this is not just an academic yeah. exercise for me. Um, yeah, you've done your part. <laughs> I've done, I've done my part. So we're, we're above replacement here, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you, when you have a lot of kids or even if you've got a kid, you know, it's, it's these debates become much less academic and much less, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fine where I am and I know I can make things work 
and much more sort of personal, like, how is this going to work? How is America going to work for my kids? And I think the answer is uh, not very well, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point about, like, feminization. I think that's a, a, a good way to put it as well. Is I feel like just the adults have left the room and they have left many rooms and they have left essential rooms that should have been populated by adults. Like, you know, I've, I've been talking about like the energy crisis and a lot of things in that direction and, you know, the health of the grid and what we're seeing here. I'm, I'm personally like, this is something I worry about every, like I wake up at night and I'm very concerned about energy security because like I've got like my heatings on energy. It gets to minus 20 in this house. I have no options. I have a baby. Like if, if, you know, the, the grid collapses, you know, if, even for a few days, we're, we're, we're at, you know, serious trouble. We need to like start burning furniture levels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. It's going to be back uh, in World War II, right? It's. Uh... Exactly. I mean, little things like this little thing, you know, little kind of daisy change little things that are kept alive by like some 70 year old dude in the back of a, you know, factory somewhere and, you know, very sensitive infrastructure. No one's binding that. That's not where the attention is. The attention is on, you know, insane things. Well, it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned it, that or or very skilled interviewing that you mentioned it because of course uh, we haven't talked about it, but my, my, my real professional background and, and a lot of my training is really an energy policy. It's where I did my graduate work. Uh, I've written lots of boring books on energy policy that I would not recommend to anybody except for energy policy nerds. Uh, but you know, it, I was interested in it and continue to be interested in it because it's such a, a core issue for people in just the way you describe. I mean, it's like, how am I going to heat my home when I turn on the light? Is the light going to go on? I wrote a book uh, called Keeping the Lights On at America's Nuclear Power Plants that was addressing just this because what you do end up having um, is the 70 year old guy who's been running it for 40 years. And now, you know, everybody's saying, well, we don't need you. I mean, you saw this really dramatically in Germany. Um, And I've just been stunned to the degree to which even after what some of us warned would happen. And and of course, famously Donald Trump warned would happen with Russian natural gas blackmail um, that they're not just, you know, turning on every coal fired power plant, uh, you know, getting nuclear to go back on is a little trickier, but just sort of full steam ahead that that climate would even be a serious part of this discussion just shows the kind of lack of seriousness of the debate. Um, and, you know, again, I say this as a, I'm, I'm kind of a, a mushy moderate on the climate issue. So it's not that I'm saying that from a full skeptics uh, perspective, but it's just it's a lack of seriousness about the core basic interests that people have to be, uh, you know, to have the lights be on, to be able to cook, to to be warm. Um, and it, it's really sort of shocking to watch that abdication in real time of, of interest by Europe's leaders of its own citizens in favor of uh, really aggressively adjudicating the eastern border of Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, like the 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 case of nuclear power is a a very interesting case study that is I feel extremely narrative led, and by that I mean just you know Three Mile Island. There was actually recently a a documentary about Three Mile Island, and to be honest, I was just watching it and just waiting. And my question throughout was, who died? Yeah. What exactly is the problem here? Like, yeah. I mean, obviously there's sludge and the people, they're crying. Then, you know, people are recounting, seeing stuff on TV and crying and crying. And I'm just thinking, okay, <laughs> please, someone tell me what exactly went wrong here. I mean, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to completely downplay, but really, I mean, I could make a documentary about something that happened here two weeks, like a very bad car accident that had more fatalities and more fallout than that. So it's, and even the Chernobyl documentary, which is, you know, nicely produced and quite good, but, you know, to orient your whole perspective on almost something that is pretty much a miracle and that would solve, you know, most of the problems that, you know, churning political movements are trying to solve all over Europe, just because it's, I don't know, libertarian coded or conservative coded because of, you know, you you saw five movies. I don't know. Um, It's, it's nuts. And it tells you a lot about the power of of media and a power of of kind of just telling these stories. It does. It does. And people conflate it with, with, of course, the nuclear bomb, which, you know, was obviously horrific, but just a totally different sort of 
technology. And it's not to say, of course, that, that nuclear has no risk. I mean, we saw in Chernobyl what could happen in the sort of almost worst case catastrophe of incompetence plus bad reactor design plus a, a non-free society. But of course, every form of power that we could have has costs and benefits. And certainly to the extent that, um, you know, that folks are sort of climate catastrophists, to not have baseload zero carbon nuclear as part of the solution. I mean, that's just my, it's my litmus test to folks I talk to who claim to be cleared about, really concerned about climate to whether they're at all serious. Um, you know, if they're sort of pro-nuclear, then you can sometimes have a serious conversation with them about like what an energy grid might might look like. If they are really dismissive or negative about nuclear as is, uh, you know, often the case in the U.S. and elsewhere, then they're just, you know, they're just posturing. Interestingly, there are sort of limits perhaps to this and that even in crazy California recently, they were basically, they, they'd been planning to shut down their last nuclear power plant. And it was really clear that to anybody with a brain that this was going to exacerbate the already very serious uh, power problems within the state. All the environmental groups screamed and hollered, California is a far left state. And the state legislature just basically told the enviros to go take a hike. I mean, because they're crazy, but they're not that crazy. Um, and yeah. so there are ultimately limits to which reality bumps against, at least in the U.S. We'll see in Europe, right, like what this winter is going to look like. Um, we've been talking about visiting these friends of ours in Germany who I mentioned. And I'm kind of like, I don't know that I want to go to Germany over Christmas uh, this year. It may not be the uh, the best time with, uh, you know, no heat in Munich. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll Snuggle see. up warm. Yeah. <laughs> they should give each other lots of hugs when you're yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's, you know, the 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 whole idea of, of who is going to actually, you know, be careful. Because like you said, they're not that crazy. And I, I think there are still a few people there who are actually, you know, like it, even in the Soviet Union, you know, my, my dad essentially was part of kind of this this cast of shadow, you know, technical people who were keeping the lights on. And, you know, despite, you know, central planning and despite even the central planners knew that for anything to be made, there has to be, you know, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, you know, dudes who <laughs> are technically adept and actually are making these these things or, you know, can can fix them if they if they, you know. Yeah, some something gets busted. And he yeah. was a um, hydroelectric engineer, and he used to do these hydro plants across across uh, the Soviet Union. And even they, even you know, idiot communists knew that this was essential. Do we know that? Yeah. Is there like a system, even like a shadow system, where you know people in power know that okay, we need about a thousand smart dudes to to make the thing work and no affirmative anything will will make this stuff work it doesn't matter what the hr lady thinks yeah no and and uh you know this is where i think the tech overlord dematerialization of everything the ideology behind that and again i grew up professionally in that world i was sort of part of internet 1.0 uh from the earliest days but th that kind of ideology just sort of runs up against the hard realities that you're talking about, or you see in places like South Africa right now, where, uh, you know, to kind of overcome the, the obvious racial discrimination that happened under apartheid, they sort of moved to the opposite. And as a result, they don't have competent engineers to run their power plants and, and the lights aren't on anymore in South Africa, right? Um, which is a problem for, for white and black South Africans. Um, and I mean, isn't Sorry to interrupt you, though, but isn't something similar happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now? <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely, mean, right? And I sort of had to laugh at all of these, like, there was in particular this one woke reporter from uh, Brooklyn who was railing against Republican-run Mississippi. And, you know, I'm from the Southeast. That's where I grew up. And, you know, I know from, I mean, I've been in Jackson. I've followed it. I mean, it's been run by this crazy sort of literally black nationalist regime for a while that is just kind of been running the city into the ground um uh you know and so it's it's a little bit you know it's interesting we saw a similar thing in flint michigan with the water that was you know blamed on the republican governor who you know admittedly like the, the republican governor didn't handle that situation perfectly but somehow the democrats who ran that city for 70 years or more had ran the water system into the ground escaped media blame entirely imagine my shock and, you know, the people who didn't 
totally, you know, provide adult supervision to these idiots uh, somehow got all the blame. Uh, you know, I think yeah. it's sort of, again, broader, more broadly indicative of, of some of the, the unhealthy trends we have in the United States. I think a, another blue check was uh, blaming white flight <laughs> for the problems yeah. in Jackson. Yeah. And uh, one of uh, the, the anons was saying that, you know, access to white people is not a human right. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> so, but people people think it is. And then, you know, unfortunately, you know, there, there are people who talk about, it, well, you're running out of white people to kind of blame for for stuff like this. And again, I mean, you want to talk about subversive. I mean, the the dialogue on race is is so dishonest in this country and is really you know, kind of the, it is the third rail. And I know because I touch it sort of shamelessly under my own name with a fair bit of frequency. Um, but, but it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's really so poisonous. It's, it's poisonous to getting anything done. Um, in particular, we kind of have both sacralized and infantilized black people in America, uh, you know, which is not good for black people. It's not good for anybody else. Um, as opposed to saying, hey, like everybody else, you're responsible for your own shortcomings and uh, you get credit for things you do well. Um, you know, this this is the, even, even among sort of, um, you know, subversive or based Republicans or, or even anons, I mean, the, the inability to talk seriously about race in any meaningful way is, is, is a real, yeah. I mean, it's the Achilles I mean, heel. That's why there are anons, and that's essentially what right. that's the thing they cover, and that's why that space is attracting you know a lot yeah. of attention because they say the things that people cannot say or yeah. they say them in very creative ways. <laughs> well, and I get it. Like I get you know that you get canceled, and you know I've been semi canceled myself, so I'm I'm appreciative of that, and and I don't diminish. But rather than rather than trying to push back or like you know pretend that uh, you know we could actually govern the country and just say, Hey, no, we're not going to, we're not going to play this type of racial blackmail. Um, people just fold as a, a default position. And of course it doesn't help that the Republican party folds as a, a default position, but it, it doesn't need to be like this way. And by the way, it won't be this way because reality will get a vote. The question is how much unpleasantness are we going to have to go through before we get to a more sane system and way of dealing with this. I mean, are we going to be able to muddle our way through, you know, my, that's my hope certainly to a more sane way of, of talking about these sorts of issues, or are we going to kind of blow up in a Hobbesian war of all against all? Uh, you know, I, I worry, I worry <laughs> the latter, uh, yeah. you know, looks increasingly likely as, as, as Indeed. time goes on. The only two, I think, relevant examples in recent history are South Africa and Brazil. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think there's much else to, yeah. <laughs> to draw from. Well, and I think you know, the Brazilification of America is probably what we'll probably end up with. I mean, I, I don't think we're, we're not going to wind up in a sort of, you know, truly alarming way. But I, I've spent a fair bit of time in Brazil and, you know, you have... I mean, you some have nice a places. Sort of, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's some, some nice, nice places in Brazil. And if you've got money in Brazil, like you can live pretty well with a lot of security. Right. But it's mm -hmm. not it's not exactly a place of great opportunity for all. And it's not a place where the public sector works really well. And it's not a place where politics works really well. And it's certainly, you know, we can aim higher than being Brazil. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I worry that the Brazilification of this country and people have written about this is kind of proceeding apace. And it doesn't mean that we're going to totally collapse, but it means that we're going to be a lot less than we could be as a country. Yeah, it does seem that, you know, everything is accelerating to just not not just the, the hollowing out of the middle class. But like you said, essentially, it is the biggest part of Brazilification. It's this kind of stratospheric rupture between between what the underclass is and what the overclass is and yeah. you know constant criminal battles between you know the these factions and right yeah and by the way i mean brazil has gotten a lot worse my my wife's uh parents uh grew up in brazil uh they were american expats there for a while and and you know the sort of uh the sort of rio de janeiro that they describe you know living in in sort of the 1950s you know, early 1960s or her grandparents who kind of come there, uh, you know, was a much more 
hospitable and happy place than I think the country is today. So uh, you can degenerate uh, from uh, where they were to to where they are today, and, and again, you know, it's a very worrisome trend here in the in the United States. Yeah, it does seem like that's that's the trend. I mean, that's essentially what kind of scared me away from living in London uh, for for the longest time. Uh, it just it just got really scary, and it became like, you know, the lying eyes school of empirical research was giving me more and more data that you know things were really heating up. And in the media, you can really tell. I mean, it's just you know whatever stories you want to hear, but just right. you know around my house. You know, people were getting stabbed, like, you know, two kids, you know, one killed the other kid, like, you know, 13, 14 year olds, you know, it's just, you know, <laughs> the police was scanning the park next to my house for hidden knives because apparently the kids, you know, in the gangs like to hide knives under rocks and stuff and they yeah. had their stashes and they kept pulling out knives from, you know, rocks just like, you know, three meters next to my door. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this, you know, this is a, is a bit much. And, you know, also there people would say it, it like London, you know, big metropolis always attracted a lot of people from around the world. It never used to be like this. Like yeah. This scale of, of, of criminality is just unheard of. Well, and of course, um, the left in, Lo- in London talks about knife control, right? I mean, they do. It's literally yeah. like it's this it's the same. It's almost like a parody. If you're familiar with the U.S. arguments on gun control, it's, it's like the same thing, except knives. I'm like, hmm, maybe there's like an underlying third variable that you're missing here because, uh, you know, uh, third rail. We're actually the most armed state uh, in uh, the country. I mean, everybody here has guns. Um, And it's not that we have no crime, but we have very, very little random crime. Uh, I mean, I I can walk certainly uh, around anywhere in my city pretty much at any time without any worry about that, despite the fact that, like, I expect that I know both I and certainly all my neighbors are are heavily armed, right? So it's uh, you know there there's a there's another variable or variables at at work there, and maybe we should explore uh, what's going on there rather than uh, you know blaming guns and knives. Yeah, I think I mean to be honest, it's the same here and my little town in Romania. I mean, there's all virtually no criminality, no violent crime. Like you know, there's no breakings and there's you know there's corruption. There's kind of a, a bit of a mafia state, as you can imagine. You need to, you know, yeah, negotiate your way through life through a lot of relationships. There's not, it's not as direct as an Anglo land, but you know, we we make it work. Um, yeah, it's uh, an, another thing I wanted to to ask you about is um, kind of the you you mentioned your article like the the Tocqueville, you know, writing about uh, about the the U.S. and I think he does not mention immigration at any point. I thought that was a really yeah. interesting uh, perspective. Doesn't mention immigration, doesn't mention immigrants. And there's a couple reasons why. And it's not that, of course, he didn't, wasn't aware that there weren't immigrants in, in eight, I think he wrote it in the 1830s America. Um, but we were really before. And so at this point, you know, there's 200 plus years of, of European settlement in America, I mean, if you want to go back to St. Augustine, it's really, really like 250 years at this point. But um, more time between we we are closer to De Tocqueville than De Tocqueville was to the initial settlement by Europeans of the uh, United States. So sort of start there. But the really first significant um, immigration of of non-British people to uh, the United States happened in the wake of the failed revolutions of 1848. In Europe, that's actually when some of my family uh, began showing up from Central Europe. You know, uh, various folks who were on the wrong side of those things um, began coming in. Now, of course, it wasn't that there weren't any immigrants from those places beforehand, but as as best we can tell, um, America at the time of the revolution was about eighty five percent British, um, uh, if not higher. Uh, and and just you know a few scattered people from uh, some of these other places. Uh, I think eighty five percent British, maybe nine percent Dutch. Uh, you'd had the original settlement in New Amsterdam, and then you know some French, some Swiss. Uh, our our county, my county, Gallatin County, is actually named after Albert Gallatin, who was a Swiss guy. It was Jefferson's Secretary of State when the Lewis and Clark expedition came out here. So it's not that we didn't have uh, immigrants or immigration, but it was a much more um, it was it was essentially a British outpost here, uh, you know, that was kind of creating its own political independence. Um, and it was uh, so immigration just wasn't so relevant to de Tocqueville uh, when he was thinking about democracy in America. And it was only after that that we kind of moved into a more 
uh, you know, mixed society then ultimately for a little while, an immigration, uh, a more heavy immigration society before we, we shut the door uh, for 40 years starting in the 1920s. Yeah, I think one one aspect of of um of kind of having a, a core culture and having um essentially, you know, like you said, you know, 85% British, 90% British um is that it, it benefits immigrants as well. Like, you know, people see culture as, you know, oh, we we eat at a restaurant, there is food, there's a, a culture is a coordination mechanism about how what how I stand in, in relationship to you. You know, we we need to know what the rules are so that we can cooperate. We can do business, we can speak the same language, we can refer to the same references. And um this benefits immigrants as well because you know you come in, you plug in, you learn the culture, and then you can plug into everyone else right. who shares that culture. Um, you essentially by having multiculturalism, you deprive that person of all of those opportunities and you essentially ghettoize them because that's what happens. They go into these cities, they go into Romania town, only speak Romanian, only interact with Romania, only do Romanian businesses. Surprise, it looks like Romania. Yeah. You know, yeah. just like Bangladesh town looks exactly like, you know, Bangladesh. Yeah. And and I, you know, it's interesting because I grew up uh in North Carolina in a town where everybody was basically white or African American. Um you know, and those cultures were, were, had some overlap and obviously also some significant differences, but there was really nobody else at the time. It's no, no longer true. Um, and I now kind of live in a place that's pretty monoculturally white, which is obviously very unusual in the United States these days. Um, but for folks who were not part of one of those majority cultures at the time, they were actually very strongly accepted, certainly where I grew up, and they they assimilated, which is now a dirty word, of course, but was actually really good into those cultures. You know, some of the, you know, I knew Chinese immigrant kids who became more Southern than Southern because they weren't, you know, there wasn't like the Chinese uh, immigrant enclave. There was no Chinatown where I grew up, right? So like, you show up here, you're from a different culture, and you figure out and navigate that culture and become part of that culture. And the good thing about a kind of contained level of immigration is that you can do that. You can welcome that level of diversity when it's controlled and it contributes some new things to your culture and um, your culture changes to, to some you know manageable degree because of that. And you keep the kind of overall cultural unity that you're, I think, kind of getting at. Um, to me, this is just a much more healthy way to run a country and a much more serious way to run a country. And it was was better for the people who who grew up in it. And in some ways, I was even you know a foreigner to the kind of core culture. My family was not a you know an old Southern family, but you figure it out. You figure it out, and then uh, you know over time you you adapt and um, you learn and you become accepted. And that uh, you know to me is just the way a healthy society should work. Yeah, and I think there's um, there's also kind of the the aspect, you know, what it looks like coming from one of the the cultures that tends to, um, you know, essentially send people abroad. You know, like like myself, you know, I I go abroad, and there's this idea of brain drain, and it is it is is quite hard for the. I know, like from the perspective of the U.S., you know, who cares? You know, if you can, you know, bring in people who make money, you know, it's it's great. The U.S. is one at the the contest of nations. It's the greatest place. Everyone wants to go, wants to go there. But for the countries that these people are leaving from, it's not great. But there is one way in which immigration really does benefit these countries. And a lot of people are doing this right now. They go abroad, kind of like myself. They essentially do almost an apprenticeship in what it is to do business, you know, learn how to cook in like a, an industrial kitchen. We now have like a really good Thai restaurant here done <laughs> by Romanian guys who went to work in a Thai restaurant in the UK and they learned from the people there and they brought it back and it's, it's really decent. So it's, uh, it's stuff like that. I think this is quite, you know, enriching, but essentially it means that the people come back and they remain back. Yeah. No, and that's great, right? When people do come back and, you know, bring with them some of those, those skills and experiences and and again, I don't think that uh, a culture should be hermetically sealed. I mean, I'm a reactionary, but I'm not that reactionary. <laughs> okay, um, I mean, there's there is going to be some flow in between cultures, particularly with the internet. It's, it's almost inevitable. But um, uh, you know, again, it's just a question of what are the limits and in whose interests are we governing. Uh, and I think that's what uh, gets lost. Um, uh, you know, and if, if folks want to come here and 
learn the American way and bring some parts of that that work back to where they're from. I think that's great. Uh, if they are super, super awesomely talented and they want to stay, that's also great. Um, but uh, beyond that, um, you know, I, I question whether it really serves the national interest. I don't even think it's designed to serve the national interest. It's like designed to like assuage the white guild of suburban cat moms in America. That's like who the target core group of our immigration policy, I feel like, is today. Um, mm. So it's you just can't it's not serious. Really, yeah, I just think that you can't really have an immigration policy if you don't believe that there is something to the American way, you know, yeah. and that the American way is more than, you know, uh, a nation of immigrants. Cause if you think that's, you know, we're a nation, we're, you know, a propositional nation, the proposition is we're a nation of immigrants, you know, essentially there's not really anything to it. It's just like, Oh, you know, there's, we're nothing. We're just the empty shell that you, you should, we will, will greet you into. So right. yeah, that's, you know, there has to be a, a primary culture a, a a vivid, interesting, you know, with with a bit of kind of self love there, you know. Some, yeah. you, you need to have a, a core constituency of people who really, you know, and that's essentially what attracted people to America in the first place. If you know this devitalized, you know, self hating, archaeophobic, call it whatever, version of Europe in America, it's running on fumes. This is not what people are going to, and uh, also a lot of people that I know from here who are immigrating to you know places like the UK. They're, they're explicitly going for the money. I, I still kind of went because, you know, I was interested in, you know, mingling with whatever type of elite people that I thought that would could teach me something, you know, from the Anglosphere. I like the culture. I read the books, all that type of stuff. But most people just realize that, okay, these places are rich. What else is there is there right. to know about them? They're rich and we can go and get more money there. And that's yeah. that's what they're sending out. It's, 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 it's going to be done very soon. Like this can continue. Yeah, no, it can. And of course, we don't have the cultural self-confidence in America to declare um, that we do offer something more than that. Now, when I say we, I, I really should exclude folks on the right. I mean, I think there are a lot of folks on the right who have a very distinctive and strong sense of, you know, America as a culture and a place and, and things that we have to offer. But but we're sort of marginalized from um, the sort of broader discussion that one is allowed to have. So, uh, you know, then that becomes a, a problem, but, uh, you know, the, things that can't go on forever won't. And this, uh, this is, as you just alluded to, I mean, it's not sustainable, so it's going to blow up. And the question is in what, uh, in what direction is it going to blow up and what are going to be the consequences of that? Um, and, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I'm very happy about being in Montana is kind of being, there are, there are downsides to being far away from the centers of power, but they're also good things. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, I, I was, uh, I studied a lot of Chinese history at Yale. And, um, one of the things that you kind of do as you read Chinese history is, uh, the, the rulers lose the mandate of heaven and they're overthrown by somebody. But especially in the earlier years of China, when it was a less unified country, there's always, um, for 150 years thereafter, there's kind of like rebels in the countryside who are not, you know, giving allegiance to the new regime. And I sort of view my life in Montana as a little bit like that. I mean, we're sort of uh, we're sort of out here as the, the rebels in the countryside who have not acceded to the new regime. And perhaps we will be uh, the folks who eventually, uh, in a purely metaphorical sense, of course, march on uh, the Beijing of our current times and uh, kind of overthrow the Leviathan. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's just, the current situation is just not sustainable. Yeah. And you're, you're the revolutionary ferment, you know, yeah, like the Unabomber. <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, that's, that's the place, that's the place to be. If you, if you want to have some, you know, if you want to write some manifestos or anything, I'm sure there's, there's definitely a market yeah, well, for it. As, as um, we were talking before we got on, the Unabomber is Montana's most uh, famous intellectual probably. So we, we do have it. I'm not, not endorsing his ideas by the way, but, uh, uh, you know, we do, we do get some eccentrics, uh, up here with, uh, with all the wide open space. And, uh, uh as, as one of my, uh, Friends uh, here said to me, uh, explaining why they'd taken a long time to to contact me over uh, after being virtually introduced. He said, "Well, but if we'd wanted to meet other people, we wouldn't have moved to Montana." So, <laughs> you know, that's uh, there is some some element of that, uh, you know, out here in the hinterland. 
Mm, that sounds sounds calming and beautiful. Very it zen. I'm, I I do envy you. I'm um, looking out at the mountains as we speak. So uh. mm, that's wonderful. Um, it is time. It is time, Jeremy. I will ask you the question of the show. <laughs> Are you ready? Um, what's your subversive intellectual? Who should we be reading? Who's ignored? Okay. Well, I've got a few, and I and I am prepared for this question as a as a Good. loyal <laughs> uh, subversive podcast listener. Uh, I'll give a, a few in sort of uh, of different frames of of subversiveness and obscurity. So the first one I'll I'll give is just a really really obscure one because uh, he's sort of on the theme of of what we've talked about today. A guy named Paul Lake, who uh, just died this year, who I never met, who was the poetry editor at First Things. I think that was the closest he got to being part of the conservative movement in any way. But he was a he was a gifted poet and an intellectual of various sorts who, who wrote for a variety of, of publications, um, uh, not exclusively affiliated with the conservative movement. But he wrote an absolutely brilliant book called Cry Wolf that nobody has read um, about American immigration. Um, and it's it's essentially a 1984 style uh, fable that takes place, or not 1984, really, Animal Farm. It's, it's really, it literally takes place on a farm of different animals. And it is the most brilliant um, parable of immigration and the dangers of multiculturalism. It's done exquisitely well, um, but because it was ideologically verboten and because I think uh, Mr. Lake was not a self-promoter to say the least, both it and he have been totally forgotten, but it is, it is worth checking out. Uh, it's a really brilliant, brilliant um, piece of work. So that, that one I'll uh, recommend. Um, another one I would recommend that I believe Pedro Gonzalez uh, mentioned when he was on your podcast would be Sam Francis, who I think kind of understood Leviathan. He was, again, a, a really distant intellectual. I mean, he he had some uh, some racial enthusiasms that I don't uh, share, although I think in some ways that uh, he did have some insights even on uh, race relations because of uh, his, you know, kind of old South leanings. But I think sort of more importantly, he, he had a, a incredible understanding of the managerial state um, uh, and the way that it was used to kind of oppress Americans. And you can read stuff from Francis, um, who died, uh, I don't know, 20 plus years ago or close to 20 years ago, I think now, um, that just feels like it was written now in terms of all the fecklessness of the Republican Party. The uh, He was a, a big student of James Burnham uh, and wrote several books on Burnham. Um, and, uh, you know, he just really had a, a very sophisticated understanding of what was to come. And even even David Brooks, you know, who is uh, the, the epitome of a kind of squishy, fake conservative intellectual, wrote a piece a few years ago in The New York Times. who's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, Sam Francis had some some bad views on on race issues. But I have to acknowledge that he was really prescient uh, in terms of seeing kind of where everything was was going in terms of the managerial state and, and kind of being a Trumpist before Trump. Um, I'd particularly recommend uh, Beautiful Losers, Essays on the Failure of American Conservatism. Um, I, I don't think it's in print. Uh, you can find copies. Uh, of course, this is unofficial because I would never encourage anyone to vo- violate copyright, but I believe you can, with a little digging, uh, find some free copies of it online, particularly the title essay, which was written uh, for Chronicles magazine in 1993 is just, I mean, it's just brilliant. Again, like it's, it's a sort of thing. It almost like you almost miss the brilliance because it's like seeing um, a film in which some great new technical breakthrough was um, done 40 years later. And you're like, well, yeah, now everybody does CGI or everybody does this, but no, you know, he like was talking about these sorts of, of things and and the failures of the GOP you know, 40 years ago in a way that's just totally uh, relevant today. Um, so I think he's really brilliant. Another guy who's kind of uh, closer to the, much closer to the mainstream, but was certainly subversive and and was hated for it is a, a V.S. Naipaul, who in uh, a brief moment of non-political correctness after September 11th, was actually awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, uh, he was an Indo-Trinidadian uh, writer who lived most of his adult life subsequently in England. Um, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, and I think he really understood the colonial encounter and um, the frictions between races and cultures 
in just an incredibly profound um, way. And he was a wonderful writer. And in fact, uh, I read a, a long piece for Claremont once when he, he, after he died a few years ago, just sort of an appreciation of Naipaul's work uh, in which I mentioned that there was a guy who um, um, uh, a friend of mine and I, we were sort of mutual friends with this guy, uh, a fairly prominent guy. So I'm not going to mention who he, he is, but he said, you know, I bet you and this guy do not agree on a single thing. Um, and when Naipaul died, this guy wrote a big appreciation of Naipaul, the, the person who I didn't agree with about anything. And I think that really just speaks to how much Naipaul's understanding of the human condition really transcended ideology. Um, you know, I particularly recommend his trilogy on India, uh, which he kind of was able to do from a perspective of uh, somebody of Indian origin, but who was not Indian. And so he sort of has a certain distance. Uh, his book, Abandon the River, um, about uh, the post-colonial Congo, which is, I think, one of the most savage uh, books on post-colonialism ever written. Um, the Enigma of Arrival, A House for Mr. Biswas, which was kind of an autobiographical book of him growing up in sort of straightened circumstances in Trinidad. Um, just a, a wonderful writer. I mean, a, a very unpleasant person, by the way, I, I feel <laughs> that probably should be added as many of these guys uh, probably were in their own lives. So a very difficult person, but a, a guy with wonderful insight um, and maybe not entirely subversive because he was, uh, you know, he was, he was some of the stuff he wrote scandalized people. So he wasn't fully accepted, but he was, he was certainly accepted, but he's a guy who I find, um, because he wasn't, and he was certainly a man of the right, but because he didn't engage in politics or polemical writing in that way is not as appreciated by folks on the right and not as read by folks on the right as he really should be. He's a really wonderful writer and would, would highly recommend him to anybody. Oh, wonderful. That's great recommendations. Um, I, I also kind of want to note that indeed the, the kind of the curmudgeonly writer, be he even, even like in the, in the eighties, there's this whole generation of super, you know, assholy writers, <laughs> like famously douchey, um, you know, just, I think, what was it like, Kingsley Amos was a, a a big douche, and even just people who who write just fiction. Um, I think the the fact that now those have been um, um, replaced by by just I don't know women who write like confessional essays at forty five about what they felt like when they first went to Equinox Gym or something like that yeah. is is a, is a huge tragedy. Like yeah. Yeah, so yeah. You, you kind of have to be a bit of a strange outcast, kind of incelly old dude to to right. produce to to plumb the depths of of human you know we, weirdness. We all eat, pray, and love now, and that's it. That's exactly. all we're allowed to do. Except we're not really allowed to pray unless it's to like some non-Christian, non-Western pray to non-Christian stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, and, and love is only like uh, you know in some non-binary way. So maybe we're just allowed to eat. I don't know. You know, maybe that's where yeah, we, we're definitely encouraged to eat. That's where, for sure. where we've gotten to in society, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, um, Jeremy. This was just, uh, yeah, lovely, and it was a long time coming. And I'm very happy that you come on. Uh, delighted to uh, come on. If anybody would like to follow me or any of the stuff I do, uh, best place is my Twitter account, which is at Jeremy Carl Four. Uh, not a very creative, uh, cute, uh, anon type sign off, but that's where you the can. Fourth uh, Jeremy call is the best one. <laughs> that, uh, you can you can find my my very uh, my very public stuff, and I put most of my writing up there. Or you can go to my website jeremycarl.com, and I've got links to most of it there. But uh, pleasure talking, Alex. Uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you out in uh, Florida at uh, various places at NatCon, and uh, we'll uh, oh, man. continue the conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited as well. Yeah, very looking forward to see you. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>